Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. In this episode, the writer, publisher and original Ibithologist Martin Davis helps us to bring alive characters living in Ibiza in the 1960s. We delve deeper into the enigmatic figure of Elmer de Hori, possibly the 20th century's greatest art forger. You'll hear Martin challenge, one by one, what I had assumed to be the basic facts about Elmer's life. Next, we take a look at some of the other figures surrounding Elmer at the time. The novelist Clifford Irving wrote the biography which catapulted Elmer into the limelight, but Clifford was himself a faker who went to prison for writing a book which he claimed was the authorised biography of the reclusive millionaire Howard Hughes. Elmer had a difficult relationship with his art dealer, Fernand Legros, who together with his partner, Rial Lessard, played a big part in Elmer's life. But Lessard, who was still alive, later claimed he was the artist behind many of the pictures claimed by Elmer. We also discuss Orson Welles' documentary, F for Fake, and Francois Reichenbach's Elmer, The True Picture. Apologies for the poor quality of the audio recording. I'm afraid the coronavirus lockdown meant that I couldn't meet in person with Martin. And unfortunately, the line between San Vicente in the north of Ibiza and Ibiza town wasn't very good. Well, I'm delighted to have on the line from Ibiza town, Martin Davis, the author and publisher. It's... um, Unusual that we would have to talk over the phone, Martin, but in this time of coronavirus lockdown, we don't really have any choice, do we? No, no. I'm I'm just going to do a quick recap on Elmer, in case anyone's forgotten or or can't remember who he is. I find him a really warm, fascinating, likeable kind of rogue character. He threw fabulous parties and and made a real fool of the art establishment. What's your overall impression of Elmer, Martin? Um, yes, that's absolutely true. He was someone who was utterly charming. You've, everyone fell under his spell. And then until he'd actually uh, robbed you blind or, or taken your diamonds or whatever it was he did, then you, you couldn't help um, but love him. And even then, you might, you might find yourself preventing him in court because he had always a ready excuse. He was a very slippery character, um, a real charmer and a genius in many ways as a swindler. He was... Uh, one of the 20th century's greatest swindlers, without any doubt. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I'm just going to quickly run through his biography. And Martin, do correct me if I'm wrong on any of these details. There's yeah. still a lot of grey areas. So, Henry was born in Hungary in 1906 to a, a lower middle class family. He trained in art. In um, can, can I just um, correct you there? Uh, I know some art historians have been saying he's lower middle class. I'm not sure that's the case. Both his grandparents were quite well prosperous store owners, um, so uh, the nature of his family background is still a little bit up for grabs. I think there. Okay. I think he was. I think he came from a fairly well-off uh, family. Yes. Okay. Yeah, good. Middle Thank class, you. not lower middle class. Right. Maybe upper middle class. By the of it. Middle to upper, yeah. Middle to upper. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, he trained in art in Munich, Germany, and in Paris. Um, that's also not quite uh, <laughs> certain either. He certainly uh, left school when he was 18. Um, he probably went to the summer school in Najbanya, which is now in Romania, uh, and was, was when, he, when he went there. But it had been a Hungarian city um, on, the, on the frontier with Transylvania. And um, then whether he trained in Munich and Paris is, again, open to doubt because there's... There are no records of that, so we don't know. He said it. Everything Elmer said is suspect. Um, it sounded good when he was making out he was a brilliant painter. He knew all these 
other other brilliant painters. So it, it was part of his uh, false CV, I think. Um, I found evidence that, uh, for example, he said he 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 taught he he uh, he studied under Leger in, in Paris. Well, at the time he was uh, he said he he was actually uh, studying under Lovis Corinth, a completely different painter, back back in the twenties. Uh, no mention of Leger at all. So everything he says is suspect, <laughs> especially what he said to Clifford Irving. <laughs> Whether he studied in Munich, there's no solid evidence for that as far as I know. Okay. He would have known it, and Najbanya, the, the academy where he studied in Romania, had a very strong link with the, with the Munich uh, uh, Academy uh, of um, Hyman. So, so he may have just added that to his CV without it actually having, having happened yet. Thank you. Okay, well, I'll, I'll keep going and let's see if the next sentence makes sense to you. He struggled to sell his own art, yeah. art in his own style, and um, didn't make money and became quite impoverished. Well, uh, I'll stop you there again. I don't okay. know. I don't know how busy he was trying to sell his own art. Um, he was so busy being a swindler, um, uh, taking had a, a, quite a sort of. Uh, uh, a, a sort of uh, active social life in Budapest, and he was um, he was a journalist as well in the twenties and wrote poetry and things like that. I, I I just question how much he was trying to set himself up as a painter. Um, I've come across a couple of mentions of him in uh, one exhibition in Paris and one in a very small one in Budapest, but um, I don't. I'm I'm a little bit dubious about him really trying to be a painter at that stage. He, he was basically trying to find easy ways to get rich and spending his parents' money, his friends' money, and his employer's money. Basically, whatever he did, he was on the make. Yeah. Okay. He wasn't, he wasn't one of these. He, he always painted himself, certainly to Clifford Irving, as this impoverished, um, struggling artist, you know, like something from Moulin Rouge. Yeah, no, I'm not so sure that's true. Oh, this is this is great. Let's try the next sentence then. Um, okay. that, that, that when he was in France, when he was in Paris, uh, as a struggling uh, artist, well, well, perhaps not. Up there. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. I don't know how long he was in France for. Um, I know he spent a lot of time in the twenties. He, he was still in 1926. He was only he was only 20 years old uh, when he was supposed to have um, gone to Paris. Um, I, he certainly made a trip there, probably funded by his family. Whether he studied there and whether he lived there for any length of time, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Um, he had, this, as I say, this exhibition, this painting exhibited in the 1926 Salon, uh, which is true, he said that, but, um, and it was uh, this uh, 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 sort of scene of a little village in the south of France, a small town, quite, quite well-known to artists. Yeah, what he was doing in Paris was probably kind of duping people and taking people's money. Yeah, as he did in every city, in every city he went to. Yeah, and, and living the high life by buying nice, nice clothes, jewelry, and stuff like that. According, according to Irving's book, the, the story of how he slipped into forgery uh, is, is that um, a rich English woman came to his um, studio and yeah. spotted a, a drawing in the style of Picasso. On this is much later, of course, 1945, after the Second World War, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, so we've, we've, jumped, we've jumped now two whole decades in which he basically led a lot of crime and um, was imprisoned and went to, was in and out of prison and in and out of court. <laughs> okay. Eluding the authorities in various countries, yeah, all across Europe. Okay, okay. Well, that, that yeah, he wasn't painting answer. so much, I don't think. An Englishwoman came, saw this picture in the side of Picasso, mm. and, brought, and bought it. And at the time, well, he was, he was penniless, mm. and uh, needs money to pay the rent. And when the woman asked him, oh, was this by Picasso, even though it was by okay, can I Can I butt in there? Sorry, I'm, sure, I'm hardly sure. letting you open your mouth. But um, <laughs> the thing <laughs> is, I mean, the, the, the thing is, there's this legend of Elmy, and then there's truth. So we're trying to get, establish the the bedrock of truth here, which is tricky. Okay, what was the picture? It was a, a line drawing, not a big Picasso oil or anything like that. Now, um, faking line drawings is a completely different kettle of fish from faking a whole oil painting. And uh, Picasso, I don't think, uh, I mean, I haven't tried to fake one myself, but compared to, say, a Rembrandt or, or one of the old masters would be relatively easy, I think. And um, so, yes, he, that is a story that... that um, 
this English woman, uh, uh, wealthy English woman, bought this, saw this line drawing, and uh, he he wasn't sort of trying to sell it as a fake, but uh, when she offered all this money, he accepted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and then he he carried on doing line like fakes, uh, forgeries of line drawings for until the mid fifties, I think. Yeah, when he possibly branched out. Yeah. So he lived okay. off these quite basic. Um, he wasn't doing this kind of, the image of Elmir is that all through the four, late 40s and 50s, he was doing these massive uh, paintings of uh, oils and stuff like that. This isn't the case. He was occasionally, the, and the thing was, the art market had gone crazy for the School of Paris. So you could, you know, do a, a line drawing in whatever, five minutes and sell it for a thousand, a thousand bucks or, or some crazy money. So it was a great way to earn a living, yeah. From 1946 to 1959, he travels to the UK, Holland, Switzerland, Scandinavia, Brazil, and the US. Um, and here, he, he developed this story about being a, a titled Hungarian who's um, fallen upon hard times you know, after, after the war and he just sort of managed, managed to escape the country and grabbed, grabbed a few of his family's um, paintings on the way out. And, and here I am. Uh, now I'm, I'm here. I am in the US, and uh, I'd, I'd like to sell these to. You know, okay. he would that, that's the story that he gave. Is, is that right? Well, yeah. This is now the name he chose, um, the Ori, is an interesting one because um, uh, very few of your listeners will have heard of Andros Ori, but to Hungarians in the 1940s, he was extremely well known because he had attempted um, to to uh, claw back the huge territory of Transylvania and with Slovakia, etc., for the Hungarian kingdom. Now, Hungary had lost two-thirds of its territory in 19, uh, 1920 when the, the, the Peace of Trianon was signed in Paris, and um, the Hungarians uh, still haven't forgotten that. <laughs> They've lost them. It's the equivalent of England being confined to the home counties or something. So it was a huge loss of territory. Um, a lot of Hungarians were marooned in, in the new... Uh, New uh, European states such as uh, Romania and uh, Yugoslavia and uh, Slovakia, especially. So, this particular statesman and um, diplomat, Andras Ori, was a hero because he had um, been been ambassador in in Yugoslavia, in Rome, in um, in Warsaw, trying to win friends for the Hungarians um, in their mission to regain uh, this huge chunk of territory they'd lost. Now, in 1940, there was a special um, set of peace talks with the Romanians, or negotiations, rather, in a little town in the south of Romania. And uh, he was the representative for the Hungarians against uh, 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 a Romanian diplomat. And they failed to reach any agreement. And what happened a few months later was that the, the, uh, the Germans, the Nazis, uh, awarded the northern half of Transylvania to the Hungarians, so they had that for about five years until the war ended, and then it then it went back to the Romanian. So for the, for most Hungarians still, and those with long memories, um, the loss of Transylvania is is still rankles, and uh, it's still uh, a big subject uh, in international diplomacy for them. So basically, uh, Elmir chose as his uh, as his surname that that of this Hungarian diplomat who was came from a noble family in the northeast of Hungary. Um, I think Ori itself is more of a Slovakian name. It's not even Hungarian, so because I got a Y at the end. And um, uh, so, yeah, he, he, was, he was a hero. But he was fairly unknown in the West, and um, it sounded good. It sounded, you know, exotic and Hungarian, especially with the duh in front, which isn't Hungarian at all, of course. It's French. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but it yeah. makes it sound kind of uh, regal, doesn't it? Or, or, it went, uh, yes, and it went back well in America, of course, where a few people are uh, aware of the uh, Central European history, and uh, it became the, the pillar of his backstory as, as this impoverished uh, Hungarian noble who had been forced to sell his, his family, um, precious family uh, heirlooms, including all these drawings and later on lithographs and what have you which um, he lived off all, all around America, especially. And, and it was in America that he met uh, Ferdinand, Ferdinand Legros and Réal Lassard, uh, who became his art dealers. And he stayed, right. in the, he stayed in the U.S. for 12 years, 
on a three-month tourist visa. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, um, he met uh, Legro, I think it was in New York, Washington, somewhere on the East Coast, around 57, 58, and Lassard in 58, in April 58. And together they formed this uh, very powerful uh, block of... of um, Legro was a, a dealer, and uh, Lassard was his boyfriend, and Lassard claims also to have been uh, one of the painters of um, of this sort of uh, swindling racket that was established. Le Gros um, was a well-known dealer, uh, with a very prestigious one in Paris. Uh, he did extremely well for many years and amassed a fortune. Um, he's also a very complex character, and um, there's been a lot of uh, books and films and documentaries about him in France. He's much better known than he is in the English-speaking countries because the, the books about him haven't been translated into English. Mm. Then in 1960, he ended the partnership with Le Gros and, and Assad because he realised or he suspected that they were pocketing most of the profits from the sales and forgeries. And he returned to Europe and settled in Ibiza. Uh, but he did happen to reconnect with Le Gros by chance in Paris. And thus the alliance restarted in the 1960s. Okay, can I can I butt in again? Sure. This is this is Almir's version of the of the facts. Who knows if it's true? Probably not. Um, uh, he he kind of rewrote um, his his own family story. So he certainly would have rewritten what happened in the 50s and 60s with Le Gros, who was his main partner, business partner, to to make it seem like you know he was the injured party. He always did this whenever he was faced with any reporter or or, or um, uh, inquisition. So. Um, uh, what uh, Legros obviously was a very <laughs> adept businessman and probably did take uh, the lion's share of the proceedings. What it was that Elmir did, who also cheated people left, right, and centre, probably cheated Legros too. Legros was certainly furious with him in the late 60s and made all sorts of uh, very nasty threats. So we, we've never really Lassard. If you if you read Lassard's book um, uh, about this. Uh, in, in French and Spanish, then certainly uh, there's another side to the coin there. Um, Elmir is presented as the villain very much, and uh, they, Lassad in particular, is the innocent party, the injured party. But uh, who knows, when, when three such sort of um, uh, shady characters get together and then write their memoirs, uh, what is true? They, they are obviously going to paint themselves in favorable colors. When Elmir presented his story first to Clifford Irving and later to Mark uh, Forby, of course, he, he, he rewrote history and, and he told them, you know, versions which made him look good. We'll return to Lugro and Lassard a little later. Uh, yeah. In a bit more detail. So he was in the Ibiza and people didn't know that he was an art forger. He was, I think he, he, he gave kind of air of mystery and didn't answer, didn't give a straight answer when people tried to, to ask him what he did yeah. for a living. Um, but then all that changed in 1969 with the Publishing, publishing of Fake, the story of Elmir de Hoy, the greatest art forger of our time, by Clifford yep. Irvin, who was a, a, an American journalist and author. Yep. And this, this made him into a, a celebrity, an instant celebrity, not just in Beta and in Europe, but around the world, I guess. Yes. Uh, yep. After that, he started to become successful in his own right and was able to sell his own art as well as pictures in the style of the artist that he was formerly forging. And Le Gros got jealous of, of Elmer's success and in one of his rages, he got the French authorities to launch extradition proceedings against uh, Elmer. And this went on for quite some time, but eventually, rather than face life in a French jail, Elmer committed suicide in Ibiza in, in 1976. Okay, so shall I reconstruct some of that? <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, this is the this is the myth, this is the legend. This is according to the the Elmir camp, you might say. Um, now, uh, it's a, almost like a case of faith. You know, you either believe in Elmir or you don't, or you're a skeptic. And I'm a little bit of a skeptic now, having having investigated his background a little bit more than, than any anyone else, almost. Um, he uh, first of all, when when Clifford approached him and said, "Listen, would, would you like me to to write your your biography or your life story?" Um, Elmir 
would have seen this as a golden opportunity to rewrite his whole story and to present himself in this way, as I've mentioned. So um, that's one thing which we have to bear in mind. It's a, it's a retelling of a story from Elmir's point of view, and a lot of it is, is false. Now, the question of the paintings, uh, which appear, for example, on the cover of his book, in the exhibitions, in various um, things, and the quality of those paintings, Elmir had access to, uh, according to Lassard, anyway, Elmir had access to the, to, to the um, very high-quality um, reproductions of paintings in Le Gros's collection. Now, a lot of Le Gros, the majority possibly, were, were authentic um, of his, um, the, the work he dealt with. So he had brilliant Modigliani, the Rams, etc. Um, Elmir seems to have stolen, uh, at some stage, uh, this briefcase or this collection with with his material and used it very cleverly. I mean, he was very skilled at manipulating data and, and images and, and, and documents. So he used this uh, material to illustrate his own, you know, his own uh, oeuvre, his own, what, what the work he'd, he's alleged to, to have done. And some of them may have been original works, but uh, that's why they look so good. <laughs> um, there is a new book which should be mentioned at this stage, which came out a few years ago, um, by a, uh, a, a Spanish journalist called Diego Feliu, who lives in, in Palma, and it's called Desmontando a Elmir. And his thesis is that Elmir didn't do any of the paintings, um, and that uh, he was the, the mastermind for things like the documentation, the stamps, and possibly the signatures too. Um, he was uh, the person who did all the behind-the-scenes work with, for, on behalf of Le Gros and Lassard to make sure that the paintings looked, uh, had the right um, paperwork. Do you understand? Because um, in the 50s and 60s, the art world was getting much more kind of um, demanding in terms of paperwork and uh, provenance. So he would provide the right um, forgery signatures and stuff like that. And to do so, he was kind of... Um, uh, drawing on his incredible expertise over 30, 40 years in, in, in all over Europe beforehand, beforehand swindling, uh, you know, forging checks, all, all that kind of stuff. He was uh, a mastermind at that. So that was, from um, according to Diego Feliu's point of view, what Elmir contributed to this uh, happy band of, uh, of swindlers, of art swindlers, whereas the, the paintings may have come from somewhere else. Whether they came from Lassard, or perhaps from other people who haven't come forward or who have a more sh shadowy existence, you know, it's not a very well-charted field, uh, is uh, interest, an interesting point. I mean, Elmia has basically taken the credit for all the best forgeries <laughs> done in the past, whatever, century. Yeah, or at least up, up until the, the, the mid, you know, 1970s, you might say, or, or, or sorry, 1969, um, for, for a good uh, 15, 20 years of of uh, forging, yeah. So do, do, you, do you think that Elmir did the um, sort of the, light, the, the earlier line drawing forgeries that he was? Oh yes, I do believe yeah. that. Yes, okay. that is his. That is his work. That's not so difficult to do. I mean, if you're talking about hours of work or brush strokes, you might say to do a, an oil painting and be I don't know. I was trying to work out perhaps a million brush strokes on it. You know, over several weeks or months of work. You know, of, of you, if you were doing a, a really nice, detailed painting, a line drawing—you <laughs> do that in five minutes. It's a question of hundreds. You know, it's far less work, much easier to to pull off. You could say, um, to to be a good forger, I think you'd have to uh, be much more into the art world than Elmir was. He was, um, uh, yeah, and to be quite frank. I'm not that impressed by the works of his, which you know are his, and I'm not the only one. A lot of other people have said this, but they, they didn't look at all convincing. His, the works you really know to be by him have this sort of wishy-washy line and tonality and composition, they, even the drawing. It's not that great. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm definitely a skeptic there. It was a very nice quote. If I can just read a quote. Um, sure. Robin Morm, who was one of his closest friends on, on Ibiza, um, and this comes from April Ashley's uh, biography. When Robin Morm was asked, do you think it's true that Elmir painted all those forgeries? He replied, good God, no. 
The man can't even paint his face properly, which was true. Elmir went, went out in far too much rouge and powder. He also dyed his hair. So the scandal, by the way, broke in 68. Um, and Elmir, I mean, he was such a witty man, he shouted, I've been framed. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps he was, perhaps he had been framed, perhaps he'd been paint presented as this forger, um, which he hadn't been the, the, the master forger, but then he, then he saw his opportunity um, to go down in history as this brilliant forger, and he took it, and he made, he made it his, his new, new identity, and that's how, that's how he's been you know, seen ever since by the majority of people. So you're really sceptical of his claim that he was the greatest art forger of the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, Mark Forkey actually puts it brilliantly in the subtitle of his book. He puts, he says, life of the world's most notorious artist, okay, which I think is close to the truth. Um, uh, Irving put um, uh, the, what's the subtitle now? The, story, the story of El Midori, the greatest art forger of our time. Now, that's the legend. That's the false. He wasn't, I don't think, the greatest art forger. He may have been one of the greatest swindlers and con men. That's possible. I don't think he was a great art forger. No. I'm beginning... Some days I wake up and I look at things and I say, oh, perhaps he was, or I see the, the Reichenbach uh, footage when he does that Matisse and it looks very polished and quick and very clever how quickly he does that. But then... Perhaps he'd been practicing, you know, for that. And he may have pulled off one of his stunts. He was such a clever, clever illusionist, you know. He could really pull things off. And I think when, when they had the cameras rolling, he, he was going to do one of his magic tricks again. And he did it. And it's convinced everybody. Um, it, what, what have you been working on the last few months then? What, what have you uncovered about Helmer in, in addition to what you, you've been talking well, about? Really? Yes, that, that is an interesting question. One of the big mysteries of Helmer is the first the first, um, whatever, 40, 40 years of his life or, or something like that. Because uh, until recently, until um, Jeffrey Taylor and, uh, and I can't remember his associates started investigating in, in, in Budapest, no one really knew when, or when he was born or who his parents were or anything like that. And so um, they did some wonderful work. They went to Budapest. They, they talked with the Hungarians and translated uh, the letters and things he had in his collection. And so gradually we, we know where he would live and stuff like that. And um, what I've been discovering, I've been mapping out his family tree because you can do that sort of thing now with a bit of investigation. And I've, I've found out who his uncles and aunts were and stuff like that and where, where he came from. On one side of the family, they were from, not from Transylvania at all, but from the Banat, which is the region of south southeastern Hungary now in Romania, which is... Um, uh, was settled by Germans and, uh, and Hungarians in the 18th century. And he came from, his grandfather came from a town, which was a solidly German town, and um, was, the, was the owner of a big store there, a very, you can see postcards of it, it's quite a prosperous looking establishment. So um, that's, I think, uh, partly where he got these ideas of a, a grand family background. His wealthy grandfather, who was uh, a man... In, in Mark Forgey's biography, they say he was looked up to in the town, and that must have been the case. Uh, also, it explains Elmir's uh, linguistic fluency, possibly, because I think his, his mother was brought up speaking German, and he, she must have passed that on. So, um, so from that, it was easy for him to learn lots of other languages like English. Um, so, and the other side of the family I've recently discovered came from, I, I believe, uh, Slavonia, which is southwestern Hungary. Um, on the border with Croatia, and um, again, his, his grandfather had a store in a, in a town there and uh, ended up in this, this uh, handicraft goods store um, in Budapest, which seems to have been fairly successful from what I have read. It wasn't uh, um, a particularly, um, it, you know, it wasn't a lowly establishment, I think. It was right in the very center of, of the... Of the uh, of the imperial capital. I mean, it was a big, it was a big establishment. So, so between the Opera House, I was looking at the between the Opera House and the Academy of Sciences. So it wasn't some little dusty, dusty store in, yeah. in, in on the fringes of this huge city, this huge sprawling city. Um, one other thing which ought to be mentioned is is El Elmir's Jewishness because um, he was Jewish on both sides of his family. This is now being being established very clearly, and the Jews of Hungary 
they were extremely well assimilated and they had taken part, many of them, in, in the uprising for, for independence or semi-independence or uh, from, from, um, from the Austrian part, uh, not independence is the word, to, to get their own separate kingdom. So they um, were, they took names like Elenir, which were Hungarian names and um, were very much a part of Hungarian party. And certainly in the Banat, where his maternal grandfather and where his mother came from, they were very much, um, very, very, very valued part of society in business and in the arts and everything like that. So um, as a Jew growing up in Budapest in the early part of the 20th century, he was in a way quite um, privileged, I think. He was uh, from a, well, you know, a wealthier background. And um, so, yeah, Going, the fact that he went to this summer school in Najbanya, this, this city, uh, probably funded by his parents um, or possibly his grandparents, I don't know, uh, indicates that they had a certain amount of money. And have you uncovered anything interesting about his later life? say, the 20s and 30s. Is... Yeah, I discovered he was married twice. He was a bigamist, <laughs> amongst oh, yeah. other things. <laughs> so, although he was very gay, um, when he saw a rich woman, he, um, uh, he set his cap at her, and, uh, and uh, they were, uh, one of them at least was older than him. So um, he certainly played the field to get money and, and, and welfare, but it caught up with him. Um, there are lots of things I'm working on at the moment, so I can't reveal too much. But um, suffice it to say that he, uh, every time I discover something new, it takes my breath away. <laughs> he, was, he was a most, uh, and a bare-faced, very cheeky liar in the courts as well. He, he, faced, he faced down the judges and the accusers and made out wonderful excuses of illness, mental or physical. He was very rarely apologized for anything, um, you know, when, when he was caught with his hand in the till, as it were. He was the uh, most extraordinary chutzpah, is the word, yes. Yeah. I, 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 I've often wondered you know, what must it have been like grow, growing up in, as a Jew in that era with, with the rise well, of the Nazis. Well, this is it. I mean, we, we, we're taught now that they were terribly victimized and everything like that because that is the new paradigm, that, you know. Uh, but they were, the Jews were doing very well all over, certainly before the First World War and before the Nazis arose to power. They were the, 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 the most dynamic uh, members of of Hungarian society, uh, they did amazing, you know, things to to make it a very powerful and uh, dynamic country. And uh, um, I mean, I'm not an expert in anti-Semitism in Hungary, but I, I think as as European countries go, it was one of the most go-ahead places for Jews. It was one of the last places where they were shipped off in the, in the Holocaust. And the regent uh, uh, Horty, he he did his. I think he. You know, he did try and delay it. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, uh, he realised how important the Jews were in, in in his country. One other thing: there had been a terrible case of a, a so-called blood libel in the northeast of Hungary in the 1880s, and the Hungarians, unlike in the Dreyfus case in France, they had um, they had used the the scientific forensic evidence to establish that it was a completely false claim that this, the Jews um, had not, you know. Um, murdered this young Christian girl. And in a way, that set the tone for Hungarian enlightenment policy towards the Jews. It was a, a tolerant country uh, by any standards. Thanks, Martin. Is there anything else you want to say about what you've been doing, or shall we move on? Paris? David Stein as well. Um, just to mention this other brilliant forger who was, who was uh, kind of outed a little bit before Elmi in 1967. These two huge um, scandals broke in, in 67. Um, his, uh, David Stein was a Frenchman, uh, although sometimes he claimed he was half British. Again, his life is almost as, as fascinating as, as Almir's. It's an extraordinary story of, of talent and duplicity and uh, chutzpah. Wherever he went, like Paris and, and New York and Florida, just like Elmir, he, he managed to deceive the dealers. Uh, one thing which, when you look into this subject, you, you begin to realize is that the dealers were, in a way, the accomplices of the forgers because they often realized that they were dealing in, in, in uh, forged goods, but they pretended, they put on the face in order to sell it on to these naive buyers, these new millionaires, the new rich, whether they were oilmen or whatever. And so um, that's one of the reasons why, in a way, um, in France, certainly, it took so long for the scandal to break. 
um, both the David Stein scandal and the and the the Almia, the, the Legro scandal. And um, even now, uh, it's such a delicate subject because uh, the auction houses too are involved. They don't really want to rock the boat too much if they're doing extremely well from this sort of handling uh, rather shaky, rather shady goods. Is concerned. It, 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 it seems like people like Elmir and, and David Stein were making a mockery of the art establishment in a way, weren't they? They were yes, because the, the, the establishment was so willing to be complicit in this. They were all making good money, weren't they? Uh, and also, in Elmir's case, I mean, uh, I believe he was making a mockery of the School of Paris. He was he was saying that these these painters aren't as brilliant as everyone says they are. Picasso and and Modigliani, um, uh, etc. Um, he uh, um, once, I think, in Mark's book, he says he would never forge um, forge try and forge uh, or paint a Van Gogh because he had too much respect for the artist. And uh, n- never mind any of the old masters who were way beyond his his capability. Um, so uh, he was basically saying it's, it's ridiculous how these these vast prices, you know, just for a tiny drawing, um, you know, I can do that in five minutes. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and and he wasn't, you know, one of the best painters by a long shot in, in uh, amongst, you know, in the school he'd been to. He was, uh, uh, I imagine he was bottom of the form. Sorry. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there were some very good painters at this place, but I don't think he was one of them. Yeah. I, I don't think, looking at the, looking at the, um, the, the portraits, they, they aren't, they don't impress me. And I don't, one of his victims in, in Budapest in, in the 1930s um, was very dismissive of his, his abilities as a, as a portrait painter. Because he was doing some portraits, um, but uh, they don't, I don't, he couldn't have lived off that. So he couldn't have survived because the wood would have got around if it wasn't of a high enough quality to, um, to, to get any more customers. He always presented himself with these credentials that this, this, this eminent person has he's done this portrait, but it was completely bogus. You know, he just made it up. Talk about Mark Forge. Hmm. I was going to say a lot of that book. His book, by the way, I've reread and it's excellent. I can recommend anyone interested in Elmir should buy that book because um, he, he, did, uh, he did a fantastic job. He lived with him for, whatever, seven years and um, was more or less his protege and learned so much from Elmir. Elmir was a brilliant man in, in many, he understood art so deeply and what he has to say about it is, is uh, fantastic. So, um, uh, for me, it's a shame he, his stuff hasn't been, his poems, etc., haven't been translated into English. I think that's maybe where he shines best as an artist. And, um, there's another, if you want to read some, some prose of Elmir's, then there's another version of the, um, of the Clifford Irving book called Enigma. The new story of Elmer de Ori. It's actually the same text as the Clifford Irving, but it has an appendix of text purportedly by by Elmer, and they are very impressive. His views on art and life and everything, and you really get his voice come through in, in this uh, in these twenty pages or so. I I have to say, I mean, I hope I'm not bad mouthing Elmer. He, he would be uh, chuckling anyway, wherever he is. Uh, he was uh, a remarkable person. Really was. And he was when you when you read the the biography by Mark for the memoir by Mark Forge, you get an, a strong impression of human humanity, of his um, uh, deep commitment to art, you know, and his love of art, and his savoir savoir vivre in, in every sense. Yeah, there was. I mean, for a psychologist, there's obviously work to be done on why he did turn into this swindler. His family background. His mother actually. Um, divorced and remarried in the 20s. So um, it's been said that that's not true, but it, well, it did happen. And um, so I think there was probably some family, you know, problems there as well, which um, may have contributed to his, his slipperiness. Well, I just wanted to re- remind the listeners that uh, Mark, Mark Forby met Elmer in 1969, I think that's right, in Ibiza. And became his assistant, and they, and they lived together at uh, La Falaise, the, uh, their house up on top of the hill above Ibiza Town. Yes, or Lessard's house. According to where Lessard, it belonged to him. And in yes. fact, Elmir was forced to, to leave it. It went to, into, to a court case, and they went and lived in a, another house in the last uh, few years of his life in, in San Agustin, Camestre, which I must uh, 
try and find out his sort of house in the country somewhere. Yeah, and that's where he he took the fatal dose of barbiturates, washed down with cognac, is it? And um, and that that led to his death. Yeah, on the way to the hospital in 1976, December. That's right. In fact, Mark Mark was with him, I think. Yeah. At that time, and I interviewed Mark. What? what yeah, what an exit, though. I mean, he he, cut, he planned it beautifully. I mean, he was a drama. <laughs> uh, it's one of those kind of dramatic deaths which will will go down forever. As you know, some some people even believe that he 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 hadn't died, you know, and uh, he it was a sort of fake death, and he'd gone off to Brazil or Morocco or somewhere. So, uh, uh, but no, I I think it's clear he did die. Yeah. I found the interview with uh, Mark really emotional. Which, yes. which is, I think, that's the last... Yes, I enjoyed it very much. So, yes. Uh, yes, he, he, he was obviously someone who who had a huge impact on him. He was a real father figure and a friend and, and all the rest of it. When when you read of his um, tour with, with Mark, um, the, the two of them went around Europe in 73, I think it was. And uh, goodness me, what a pity that wasn't made into a documentary. Can you imagine El Elmi explaining the great masters of in every gallery they went to? It would have been... The best documentary ever. Um, so, uh, and we, we get a certain, you know, feeling for that if you read the, the book and also the pages in the Enigma, which I mentioned in Elmi's own hand, apparently. The, the, yeah. the book's called the, the Forger's Apprentice. Just a couple of quotes from from that interview that I had with Mark. He says his death was the biggest emotional crushing blow in my life, and he said uh, that my exposure to him fashioned the man I am today. He remains the most remarkable human being that I've ever encountered. So he obviously had a huge impact on on Mark's uh, life ever since then. Yes. And, and yeah, Mark, it's a nicely written book. I mean, Mark, I don't know, he's, he's, he's a natural writer. It's, it flows very beautifully, nicely. He's, he also, at the end, he goes into um, his psychology a little bit. And um, it, he covers many different things on that. I'd also like to mention an extraordinary article by Jeffrey Taylor, which you can read online, and it's called The Artifice of Elmir de Ori. It was written to accompany a traveling exhibition in 2013, which went around in cities in the U.S., and um, Elmir was one of five uh, forgers, uh, master forgers from the 20th century. And uh, the essay by Jeffrey Taylor on Elmir is extremely good. That's, um, that's some of the latest research back then, and I'm sure he's come a long way since then. There's also going to be a, another remarkable documentary on Elmia. They, they screened it at the Diario in 2016, and that's called Elmia on the Edge by Jaume Vinyas, and um, Jeff Retailer, Dr. Jeff Retailer was involved in that as well, and you follow them doing their research in Hungary, trying to find out who this slippery character was. Um, El Mir in El Acantilado, because La Falaise, of course, means the, the cliff, the, the, the cliff. So Acantilado is, is, a, is a play on words there, El Mir on the edge. And is that available in English, that documentary? Not yet. I, I actually spoke with Jauma Vinyas, the director, um, uh, a few months ago, and he says that they're trying to, t- trying to tie it up, um, I think funding and stuff, but uh, with any luck it might come out this year, by the sound of it, or... Well, whenever, yeah. But it's a very, very good documentary. There would be another very lovely documentary was the one by Johannes Rudd, the Norwegian one, uh, Almost True, The Noble Art of Forgery. And that, again, made made um, some groundbreaking discoveries about Elmi's background. They didn't quite get it right. They made a couple of um, mistakes in, in Budapest, but it was still a wonderful documentary. It's also released as Masterpiece of Forgery, The Story of Elmi de Ori. Uh, 1997, that came out and be released in 2008, yeah. But there's, there's a lot of stuff on him. I mean, there's, there was also a catalogue in Madrid a few years back uh, with a love beautiful illustrated catalogue. Um, and when you look at the, 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 the pictures and that, some of them are extremely good. And you wonder, my goodness me, was he that, that good a painter? But then you wonder, well, what is the... How did they know Elmi did that one? It could have been by somebody else. But he was very clever at uh, that sort of thing. Mark Forby's actually got an exhibition at the moment, I don't know if it's still running in the US, of uh, portraits by Elmir. I think he, he painted Mark himself quite a few times and other characters in Ibiza. It would be great to get Mark to bring that exhibition over to Ibiza. And I, I know there's possibly something in the in the works for next next summer. That'll be interesting. 
I mean, the other thing which, which Mark Forgey has talked about and, and touches on in his book is the fake Elmires which are appearing. I mean, uh, people uh, uh, signing works with the name of Elmir uh, or whatever, you know, perhaps Durand, because it's a fake. Um, and they, so that it's a huge sort of growth industry in the art world, the whole Elmir question. So uh, the legend is just snowballing further and further. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mark said he spends a lot of time trying to track down these fake Elmirs. Yes. Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, it's so difficult to know what the, 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 the most famous paintings he allegedly forged were the meadows in this collection of an oil from a billionaire, a Texan billionaire and called Alga Meadows, and they were um, sent to, as evidence to, to Paris in, in the case there, in the Legro case, and I, as far as I know, they sort of vanished from sight. We, so those were the, like the, the archetypal Elmiers, and we don't even know what they looked like. I mean, I found a, a picture of one of them in a French magazine, but uh, Duran, but what the rest were like, you know, who's to say well, how good they were? Um, they fooled this, this relative novice, uh, this, this millionaire in Texas who, who didn't really know a lot about Ulla Paris. And, um, but would they have fooled other people? I don't know. Were they that good? It's, it's something we don't really know. The evidence is, see, this is in a way what Elmi was able to bank on. The, the pictures themselves were so, so sh shadowy. You know, where were they? Were they in this collection or what had happened to them? But he could say what he liked, and he could say that, you know, every museum in the world has one of my works, and who's going to disprove it? Who's going to set out, go through the catalogue raisonné of, of whatever, Modigliani or someone like that, and say, no, you're wrong, that's you just saying that, but it's not even true. You know, it sounds great, but it's, it's uh, just words. Well, perhaps we could just now move on and talk a bit about one of the other characters in a bit more detail, Fernand Legro. He died in 1983 at the relatively young age of 52 and yeah. was um, the dealer, or one of the, the dealers for, for Elmir from the days that he was in the US and then in Europe as well. Well, according to Elmir's side of the story, he became rich on, on selling Elmir's pictures and then keeping most of the money together, together with uh, his, his partner, Frayel Lessard. Yes and no. I mean, um, uh, Legro was in all sorts of other swindles, and, and there's, even, there's even talk of family inheriting money. So um, whether, whether his, his massive wealth, and he was, he was really sort of living the grand lifestyle in this big, big apartment in Paris at one stage, whether all that came from Elmer's hard work painting these masterpieces, <laughs> that's Elmer's story, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. It, it sounded really good that he was sort of chained there to his, to his studio, Turning out this this master's work for this awful Franco-Egyptian character who is spending his hard-earned money, but um, I, I'm not sure I buy that either. So, but uh, Elmir was involved in in some way. I think um, possibly with the paperwork and the other thing, as I said earlier, this wonderful story of the backstory of the Hungarian aristocrat who had fled the communists and the Nazis and all the rest of it, and uh, that that's. That was almost uncheckable because the Iron Curtain had been, uh, you know, down for, for so long. No, who speaks Hungarian? Nobody <laughs> who isn't Hungarian. Um, who's ever going to check any of these facts? The internet didn't exist. Who, who could you check uh, who, who a Hungarian aristocrat was? No one knew. No one had even heard of Ori, hardly, let alone um, uh, any other Hungarians. So um, he, he, he was sitting pretty in a way, Elmir. He had this story which no one could check. No one knew the slightest thing about his family uh, or his, his, his career of crime in, in, in Hungary itself. And, um, uh, so, uh, and then, then he retired to Franco, Spain, where again he was pretty, pretty well untouchable because there were no extradition agreements between, between Spain and other countries at that stage. It was only after Franco died then the French managed to get a handle on that and, and uh, to overturn the proceedings so that he, he would have been uh, extradited to Paris to stand, to stand trial. So, so yeah. do, do, do you think it's true that Le Gros did launch those extradition proceedings? Le Gros and Elmir had a falling out. Um, what, what that was about, I'm not altogether certain. Uh, whether Le Gros was furious with Elmir, particularly furious with Elmir, uh, 
for the the biography and the way he's portrayed in that and the way that Elmia makes out he was this brilliant forger. Whether that particularly enraged him, I don't know. Lassard certainly uh, hasn't a single good word to say about Elmia in his very long and uh, quite <laughs> quite heavy going uh, biography autobiography. When when kind of thieves and crooks and and people like that fall out. Uh, it's it's ugly, and uh, I don't think anyone is, is comes up smelling roses. They're all they're all in it together, but they each kind of portray. In the Sard's version, of course, he he makes out that he was the great forger, the master forger, um, who miraculously was painting Durand's almost from the word go, which fooled all the great Durand experts for the rest of the 1950s, 60s, um, which seems rather unlikely, as he had no, no artistic training at all. And he didn't even, hadn't even seen the Duran. So from Lassard's point of view, Elmir was um, also telling lies, saying that he had painted all this, these masterpieces. So he was um, infuri- infuriated about it, according so, to him. Yeah, Real, Real Lassard is an interesting character, because he's still alive. And so you oh, yes, Real, if, if you're listening to this, please get in touch with me. <laughs> I would love to speak with you. You, are, you hold the keys to the kingdom. Um, I would, you know, you are the only person who knows what went down. And goodness me, I, I would love to speak with you. <laughs> I'd love to speak with Elmir, but he's not available. So you're, you're the second best. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's, he's still painting. And uh, he's, again, uh, it's a fascinating story. There's been documentaries of him. In the English-speaking world, he's practically unknown. But there's been quite a lot, and uh, a lot of people love his stuff and say he's a good painter. So <laughs> who's to know who was the better forger, Real Lassard or El Midori? Real's book was called 27 Years of Silence. It's never been translated into English. It's 27 Años de Silencio in Spanish, published in Buenos Aires in 1986. And in French, two years later, L'Amour du Faux, the love, love of, of, of uh, faith. And that came out in 1988. I imagine the delay was because the, his, the, the lawyers of Hachette, his, his French publishers, were worried about libel and stuff like that. And so um, because the, the powerful French artistic community wouldn't have been too happy about a lot of the things he said in that book. His main reason for writing the book was to dispel the, uh, the story that Elmi had put around, about Elmi being the best forger of the 20th century. And actually, it wasn't. Elmer, it was Lassard. Is that his point? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a straight reading, yes. That if you believe that everything he says is true, that, that would be the thing. Now, the, the thing is, after the book came out, um, uh, the whole series of, of art books by forgers, you know, purporting to tell the truth, but they're really like picaresque novels. You know, they are really... Um, Clifford Irving's book is a account of, of, of what, went hap- what happened could be read as a novel. And so could Lassard's book. You know, how much of it is true? Some of the claims are outrageous. Some of the things are true. So when you mix the two, it's very, very difficult to disentangle them. Um, and that is, you know, they, they tell, if it's told well enough, as certainly was the case with Clifford Irving's book, you are, you are convinced that it's, you know, the, the real thing. So um, you, you kind of begin to, to accept it as a fact. And it's just a cleverly told novel with uh, some truth, you know, sprinkled in. There was another famous book, which should be mentioned if we're talking about these, these books, which was Tableau de Chasse, ou la vie extraordinaire de Fernand Le Gros, by a French, a well-known French writer, Roger Pébefit, which came out in 1977. All these books, uh, novels of a, of a forger, of a faker, which were coming out in the 70s and 80s, they were kind of biographies or autobiographies, memoirs, but they were sort of semi-fictitious, you know. They weren't your average biography. They weren't written by reputable biographers. They were written by scandal mongers, people who were cranking stories up. Uh, Clifford Irving was a novelist. His second biography, Howard Hughes, was completely made up so, <laughs> and purported to be the real thing. So um, all these novels, uh, all these, sorry, biographies are both biographies and novels at the same time. Perhaps we could talk a bit about Clifford Irving then. He wrote the book Fake, which catapulted Elmia into fame yes. and, notor- and notoriety. He lived in Ibiza himself. Uh, and yes. as you say, he, he was a faker because, well, he wrote what he pretended was the authorised biography of this reclusive billionaire, Howard Hughes. 
And That's right. That wasn't true at all. He, uh, and in fact, he'd been paid a big advance by the publisher for, for yeah. the book. Um, and yeah. then, was the book ever published, do you know? Um, yes, it was published. Um, it was published, um, I think, was it Kindle or in the uh, 2014? It came out finally. Um, okay. The autobiography of Howard Hughes. It's, again, another amazing story uh, where uh, someone living in Ibiza fooled the whole world. So Ibiza was had uh, some special magic about it, I think, in the in the 60s, where these genius swindlers were operating. In, yeah. In the 70s. Characters like uh, Elmer and Clifford Irving all, all in sitting outside the Montezol. Yeah, another <laughs> another famous one. Uh, if you're talking about kind of fake people, was the was the princess Amelia. Uh, she was a Yugoslavian who made out that she was a, a kind of princess and uh, had a, a title bestowed on her by the king of Yugoslavia. And uh, Mihailovic was her her surname, but known as Princess Amelia. And she was another wonderful character who was from Central Europe and apparently she and Elmer used to have shouting matches sort of saying you're a fake princess and you're a fake forger or whatever so that <laughs> in whatever language Hungarian I think I think uh, Smelia may have spoken Hungarian too so uh, <laughs> that would have been funny <laughs> and uh, Elmer appear a lot in Orson Welles documentary F is for fake which I, yes. I saw recently. But what do you think of that film? Well, I prefer the, like most people, I prefer the original material, which um, uh, Orson Welles shamelessly mined and didn't even give a credit for, which was this wonderful documentary by uh, Reichenbach, uh, Francois Reichenbach, who had been a dealer himself, I think in New York. That was broadcast in May 1970 on the BBC, and it's called Elmir, the True Picture. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a link to that uh, film. Yeah, the then, of the podcast. I mean, what you get a feel for Elmer's magic and his particular brand of artifice and the way he just—he almost hypnotizes you. You know, you can see why people fell under his spell. He had an extraordinary mesmerizing power, like some, you know, Central European in a Hollywood biopic. <laughs> it's just, it's uh, what what a lovely, amazing country Hungary is. Reduce such people. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, a lot of yeah. that film, the Orson Welles film, was really about mm. Orson Welles' own ego, wasn't it? It was more, yes. more about him than about Elmer, I thought. Oh, very derivative and, and mining and not giving proper credit. I hate that. Yeah, no, typical. Yeah, although, and it was rather silly, I thought, in places. Yeah, not one of his best work. Although I did, I did like some of the quotes that Welles, Welles said, uh, Ibiza is an island in the sun where restless souls may find each other. I, I like that. Yeah. And he said, he said, a faker like Elmia makes fools of the experts. So who is a yeah. faker? Yes. Uh, I mean, I've been presenting my version here. I mean, I know some of the facts are, are right because I've found them in black and white. But um, there's a lot I don't know. I mean, he was in Yugoslavia in the early 30s. I know nothing about that, apart from use this as an excuse. He was always on the run from the authorities and the police. So... Um, basically, when Western Europe got too hot for him, then he went in, back into Central Europe, and then he went down into Yugoslavia. Who knows where else he 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 plied his trade as a swindler, you know, making friends, making out. His his kind of stock his stock trick was to make out he was, you know, a very wealthy, uh, perhaps a titled person, perhaps in, you know connected with the Prince of Wales, that kind of thing, and to um, to just build up people's confidence and then when he had their confidence to, to, to take their money or their diamonds or whatever it was and uh, live off that. Yeah, he, he was a full-time person doing that. So that's why I'm skeptical about his, his ability as a painter because anyone who is a painter or an artist or a writer or anything like that involving the art knows you have to put in the hours. You know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy life and uh, you can't come up with the goods unless you've, you've, you've put in the time. So I don't think I'm put in the time to be a great a great forger myself. That's a good point. And he didn't have the character either. Um, I don't think. Yeah, he didn't have that. Uh, I'm a believer in, in artists have a certain spirituality, which doesn't come about by swindling people left, right, and centre. And I mean, they may do a little bit, but the scale he did it on was so so massive. I don't think he had the the makeup, and that's partly why his his paintings are wishy washy. You, you can't become an artist by cheating people the whole time. 
are there any other big unanswered questions that you're still you're still trying to get to the bottom of? Yes, in 1943-45, I'm not sure where he was. So, because um, he was in Budapest and until then, and then um, he disappears. Uh, one of his cousin's widows said that he had gone to Spain, which makes sense because Germany for Jewish people was, sorry, for uh, Hungary for, for Jewish people was getting very hot. And um, he saw the writing on the wall, literally, and, and decided to get out. And he was so clever, he managed to get to Spain. I mean, my hat's off to him to, to, to find a safe house in, in a bolt hole in, in that particular climate. You have to be pretty, pretty, pretty smart. And if he went to Spain, where would he have gone? Well, he spoke French very well, probably went to the north of Spain, I think. Perhaps, um, perhaps Cadiz or somewhere like that where... Dali was, you know, the artist's uh, hangout. Uh, that is a possibility, but that's just a theory. Um, a little, um, someone mentioned Spain. People haven't been looking in Spain. His Spanish wasn't that good, incidentally. So I think he would have gone somewhere where perhaps he could get by with his French. And in the north of Spain, in, in the Catalan areas, they often, uh, certainly the holiday areas, they, they all speak French. So that would have made sense. Do we know why he chose Ibiza? Is it because it was a, a quiet place? Um, so whether he could kind of hide away. Yeah, well, the beat by the late 50s. He was here in 58, it seems, 61, which usually stayed, but he first came here in 58. And um, Ibiza was all over the place. It was a place for artists and arty people and black sheep to go to. I mean, Elmir, you know, ticks all the boxes. He was, you know, he was a poet. He was a writer. He was happy and a journalist. He was a sort of artist, perhaps. And um, he was a swindler. I mean, what, where else would you go but to be <laughs> And uh, very cheap, lots of fascinating, interesting people. You could pass yourself off as an aristocrat very easily, which, of course, was his favorite hobby. So <laughs> this was perfect. <laughs> and, and he was for the first, you know, for the first uh, half of his time here. He was known as a socialite. In fact, April um, Ashley, in her, in her account, said something like Elmir was the head of the socialite till Robin Moore turned up and he was a real Viscount, so he put his nose out of joint a little bit. And when Robin moved to the island, he displaced Elmir as its leading social figure. He was son of the first Viscount um, Morm. So that's an interesting... Uh, Elmir was very much the socialite here um, and, you know, swanning around, uh, entertaining people. He was so good at, so good at uh, dinner parties and stuff like that and parties cocktail parties. He was the person you, you had to have. Uh, probably a little bit like Sandy, Sandy Pratt in the 1990s and, and 2000 when I, when I first came. Sandy was such a witty and, and original person and a wonderful company in any party. You, you had to have him. Sandy yeah. of Sandy's bar. Yes, he also appears in the, in the Reichenbach film. Goodness me. What, what a party. I'd love to have gate-crashed in that party. <laughs> oh, yes. It would have loved to have gone to uh, one of Elmer's yeah. parties. Yeah, and incidentally, um, I must tell your reader, your listeners, that uh, the, the house, uh, La Falaise, is just up the hill from where I'm, I'm speaking. I, I live in the centre of Ibiza, and if I go onto my balcony and look up the hill, I see La Falaise every morning when I, and I, I think of Elmir. And then when I walk to the office, I go past his, his house, uh, uh, La Villa Platanera, is it, or Platera, uh, which is on my, my work every day. So not at the moment, obviously, but so I, I think and see, uh, I, I see Elmi's kind of homes every every day. And you can feel his presence. Yes, yes, yes. I've always had a thing about Hungary, so I'm drawn to Elmi's subject as well. Well, it's lovely to talk to you, Martin. And you're so immersed in, in Elmi. I'm, I'm just wondering, could there be some sort of book or uh, publication or something? Like I would love to do a publication. As you, as some of your listeners have um, realized, I've also been looking at other Ibiza mysteries, the, the Jews of Ibiza, and also the, the kind of Tanit uh, here, and the wealth of the wealth question of Tanit. Um, so Elmir is really the third great riddle, big mystery enigma, which I, w I would like to crack. And that's partly why I have been delving into the archives to try and understand this um, mesmerizing figure. And I think I'm getting a little bit closer. 
song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Vas a las tres, 